Good morning. You take your Bibles, turn along with me to the book of Romans. We began our study in the book of Romans last Sunday. We began our ascent. We left base camp. This morning we head out properly. In the year 1543, the Polish astronomer named Copernicus published a book in which he theorized that the earth was not the center of the universe. Instead, Copernicus put forward the idea that the sun was actually at the center of the universe and that the earth rotated around it. And this sparked what has become known as the Copernican Revolution, which changed the way people thought about science, about religion, about politics and philosophy. And really, there was no turning back. This morning, we're going to see another, still more revolutionary truth. The truth that Jesus is, in fact, at the center of all that God is doing. And that He always has been. This truth will challenge us to see that we, as individuals, are not at the center of the universe, but instead that Jesus, the Son of God, is the center of all things. Last Sunday, we began this journey together, studying Paul's letter to the Romans, and I shared with you this simple outline of Romans. We said that Romans represents and explains God's gospel, taking us from guilt to grace to gratitude. Covering guilt in the first three chapters, our sin and our guilt before a holy God. Moving us on to grace in chapters 4 through 11, God's provision of salvation and forgiveness through the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then moving on to gratitude, chapters 12 through 16, our response to God's grace and provision in our lives is one of humble service and joyful worship. We're going to look at our text this morning from verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1 and find that Jesus is at the center of all that God is doing. Let me read it for us from Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. We'll go through verse 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. And let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in the words of that old Anglican prayer, we ask you these things. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. Show us yourself, Jesus, as the center of all things. And move us to worship and serve you the rest of our days. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The letter to the Romans by the Apostle Paul has been identified by many New Testament scholars to be categorized as a theological tractate, a theological treatise, if you will. A letter in which Paul is not primarily concerned with or addressing even the circumstantial matters in the lives of his readers, but a letter in which he is instead primarily concerned with laying out in an extended way his beliefs about one central subject, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel, throughout the letter, he refers to in different ways. He calls it the gospel of God here in verse 1 and in Romans 15. 
He calls it the gospel of God's Son as well in this chapter. He calls it the gospel of Christ in chapter 15. And more personally, he refers to it as my gospel in chapter 2 and in chapter 16. Paul begins this theological treatise on the gospel in a very conventional way. Letters then, as now, often followed a predictable pattern. There's an introduction or an opening, there's a body of the letter, and there's a fitting conclusion to the letter. And so Paul, in the form typical of Greek letters, like Romans is, begins with an epistolary opening in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And he ends with an epistolary conclusion in chapter 15, verse 14, going through the end of the book. In both the opening and the closing, there is a strong emphasis on the gospel. Of the 12 occurrences of the word gospel and its related terms, eight of them are found in these opening and concluding sections. This high prevalence of the term gospel in both the opening and the conclusion of the letter helped to underscore the truth that the main theme of the letter is the gospel, God's gospel. Our text this morning, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1, serves as the prescript of this letter. A typical prescript to a Greek Hellenistic letter usually would cover three main things. It would explain who the sender is, it would state who the recipients are, and there would be a word of greeting. So for instance, if I was to send Pastor Rob a letter, I would start my letter this way. Lance to Rob, greetings. And it would often typically be this simple and this short. But Paul is not typical. Now while Paul follows the normal conventions of letter writing of his day with an opening and that includes a prescript, the body of the letter and the conclusion, Paul's letters are different from typical Greek letters of the day in that Paul's letters were much longer than the typical letter of the first century. Not only that, but Paul's prescript is longer than was typical. In fact, of all the existing Greek letters that we have, not just of the Bible, but of all Greek letters, Paul's opening, his prescript, is the longest of any Greek letter that we have. Now, why would Paul spend so much ink on this prescript when you can do it very simply and very quickly? And in fact, these opening lines often by us, we, we see them as sort of perfunctory. They're kind of opening. They're kind of throwaway lines. But the Bible has no throwaway lines. There are no parts of Scripture that are unimportant or insignificant to us. All Scripture is breathed by God and is profitable, as it is for these opening verses. So why is Paul belaboring this? Why is he going and extending so much effort and thought to the opening lines of a letter when he could have been so succinct and said it so simply? Well, when you consider the fact that he is writing to Christians in Rome who are part of churches that he didn't plant, that he has never previously visited, churches that know very little about him firsthand, it makes sense why he spends so much time introducing himself to them. The first six verses of this prescript, verses 1 through 6, are all about Paul. And as we'll see, they're all about Jesus in reference to Paul. They're about Paul's beliefs, they're about his ministry, and they're about his Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, even in this prescript, is seeking to establish his credentials as an apostle with a divine commission to preach the gospel of God, which is all about Jesus Christ. As I shared with you last week, as I introduced the book, Paul is concerned about the relationship of Gentile and Jewish believers in Rome. He was concerned about that at all the churches uh, around the globe. But he's concerned about that at Rome as well. There were growing tensions between these two groups, between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And Paul was eager to see them grow in unity together around the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, he writes in Romans 15, 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, according to the gospel. Be united around the gospel and around Jesus Christ, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing short of the proper and true worship of God was involved in this. They needed to be united together so they could with one voice glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus. So from Corinth, Paul writes this letter to the Romans around 57 AD, laying out in fullness the truth of the gospel from start to finish and explaining how the gospel has in fact united the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles together into one body, the church. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 12, 4 and 5. He says, For just as we have many members and one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul is emphasizing here the union and unity of the whole church made up of Jew and Gentile who don't look the the same, who don't talk the same, who don't have the same background, but who nevertheless have been united together in one body in Jesus Christ. Paul is eager to see greater unity in the church at Rome, in part so that they might be able to unite together in worship, but also in supporting Paul's plans his missionary plans to eventually take the gospel to the farthest westerly reaches of the Roman Empire, to Spain. At the same time, Paul is concerned with his immediate destination, which is Jerusalem. Although Paul wants to visit Rome, although Paul wants to ultimately go to Spain, he knows that he next has to go to Jerusalem. From Corinth, Paul will travel to Jerusalem to deliver this monetary love gift that he's spent time collecting from the various churches in Asia Minor. He's going to take that love gift back to Jerusalem, which will be a great help and a practical help to those suffering Jewish Christians there. But Paul knows that while he's there, his ministry to the Gentiles is going to be under strict scrutiny. He will come under the accusations from the Judaizers that he will have to defend. He's going to have to defend both his message and his ministry. His message of peace from God to the Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ and his message and method of unity of Jews with Gentiles together in one body in the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in Romans 15.30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. He's talking about those in Jerusalem who are going to accuse him. And that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Paul knows he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be accused of twisting the gospel and of using methods that are inconsistent with the teaching of the Old Testament, of the Scriptures. So in a very real sense, much of the content of Romans is Paul's defense prep. He is preparing for what he will face in Jerusalem as he seeks to defend his gospel message of faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and his gospel methods of encouraging unity between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. So in writing Romans then, Paul is effectively able to kill two birds with one stone. He's able to strengthen the church at Rome with a careful and extended laying out of the gospel, which will help to bring greater unity into this diverse church. And he's also at the same time writing out this letter to the Romans, which will help in preparing for his defense at Jerusalem. So with all that in mind, as sort of introductory to this morning, Let's look at the prescript that Paul writes to the Romans. And as he introduces himself to the Christians at Rome, we're going to see together five ways in which Jesus is at the center of all things. Five ways in which Jesus is at the center of all things. This is a truth which, if grasped correctly, will absolutely revolutionize your life. 
because it will remove you from the center of all things and put Jesus in his rightful place, the place he actually has as the center of all that God is doing from all time and eternity. As we have seen and we'll see again, the gospel is central to the book of Romans. It's about God's gospel. And as we'll see this morning, Jesus is central to God's gospel. The gospel is central to Romans, and Jesus is central to the gospel. And because Jesus is central to the gospel, He is the centerpiece to all that matters most. Jesus is at the center of the gospel, and that makes Him the most important individual of all time. Paul is making this clear from the very beginning of his letter that Jesus is at the center. As he introduces himself, he's quick to give Jesus his rightful place at the center of all things. So let's look first of all how Jesus is at the center. Jesus is the master. He is the center of all authority. We see this in verse 1. As was customary, the letter begins with the author's name, Paul. Now, Paul, we know, was his Greek or Latin name. His Hebrew name was Saul. It's not Saul, Paul. Paul wasn't his converted name or something like that. He went by both names depending on who he was with. When he was with Jews, he went by Saul. When he was with Gentiles, he went by Paul because he sought to be all things to all people so that he might win some by all means. His Hebrew name was Saul. His Latin name was Paul. Saul, or Paul, was from Tarsus. We know that. And he had a pretty checkered past before he came to know Christ. Paul summarized his past life before believing in Jesus this way in the book of Philippians. Philippians 3, he says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Paul says, look, I was the poster child for the Jews. I was a Jew's Jew. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's exactly what he says. Paul was not only a zealous Pharisee, but he was also a persecutor of the church, the chief persecutor of the church. Paul would later refer to himself as the chief of sinners, the greatest sinner there ever was. As a young man, Paul was present at the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and he even held the coats of those who were throwing the rocks. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We'll just see a little bit of biography of the Apostle Paul as we seek to understand this man who's writing this magnificent letter. Paul had all the greatest training. He was trained in the school of Gamaliel, the top schools, top training. He was the elite. Acts 8.1 says that Saul, or Paul, was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death, which has just been described in, verse, in chapter 7. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were, they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women so that he would put them in prison. It's a great roundup. Paul is seeking to put down this false teaching about this so-called Messiah, supposedly risen from the dead. So he's seeking to raise up all of, to route out and arrest all of these followers of Jesus. Now skip over with me to Acts chapter 9. Verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that he, if he found anyone belonging to the way, if he found any Christians, men and women, he might bring them 
bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is a description of Paul's life-changing encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And what's clear from this, it's that Jesus is in complete control. Jesus is at the center of this situation. Paul is on the outside. Paul is not in control. Paul is simply responding to what he sees and what he hears. And he responds in faith and obedience. Paul had a life-changing meeting with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Now, back to Romans chapter 1. When we get to Romans chapter 1, over 20 years has passed since Paul first encountered Jesus on that dusty road. And as Paul introduces himself here, he can't help but to describe himself only with reference to Jesus. He begins by saying, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. You want to know who I am? I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm a slave of Christ. Paul begins by explaining his fundamental relationship to Jesus, that he is but a bondservant of Christ. The term bondservant is a translation of the Greek word doulos, a term that simply means slave. All new cadets at the Air Force Academy are called what? Doulies. This is from this word, doulos, and it refers to the lowest kind of servant or slave. Poor guys. Included with the idea of the term slave is the idea of lowliness, of humility, of devotion to one's master, of obedience. All these ideas are included in the term. And so Paul, right from the start, wants his readers to not think much of him, but to think much of his master, Jesus Christ. For the Christian, Jesus is our master. He is our Lord. The Greek term Lord, which is used later on in this passage, means master. The master of the slave is the one who is in charge by virtue of his possession and authority. Paul understood that. He understood that he had been bought with a price and that his life was no longer his own. And this is the true understanding of every Christian. Jesus is not just our Savior, but he is our Lord. Look down at verse 4 and see that Paul loops in the Roman Christians. This isn't just something for the elite, like Paul, who's an apostle. This is something for all Christians. This is just basic to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that he's our master and we're his slave. At verse 4, Paul loops in the Roman Christians in their service to Christ as it refers to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our master. Christian, do you realize that Jesus is your master? That your life is not your own? That we serve Jesus who died for us to purchase us out of our bondage to sin and to set us free for service to Him? Paul next says that he is called as an apostle. More literally, the text says that Paul is a called apostle. Paul's apostleship wasn't self-conferred. Paul's apostleship wasn't some self-initiated mail-order apostleship that you could purchase for $19.99. Paul was called to be an apostle by his master, Jesus. This was Christ's initiative. This was Jesus' decision to have Paul be an apostle. 
This is important because it shows that Paul's apostleship is legitimate. It's not made up. Paul is merely following the marching orders of the master who called him into service and called him into service as an apostle. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1.1 where he describes his apostleship this way. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. No man has made me an apostle. Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, they have conferred this authority upon me. The term apostle can simply mean a messenger. It's used a few times that way in the New Testament, but most often it is used in a very technical way to refer to a special, very limited position of authority and ministry for laying the foundation of the church. The apostles laid the foundation of the church with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. That's what Paul will say in Ephesians. The apostles were limited to the 12 disciples who Jesus chose including Matthias, who replaced Judas, the unfaithful one who killed himself. Paul was added later on, as Paul will say, as one untimely born. Paul was added by Jesus as the 13th apostle, as it were. The apostle who has been specially sent to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to the nations. The marks of a true apostle included being chosen by Jesus himself, being an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection, to the resurrected Christ, and performing signs of the apostles in performing miracles. And on all marks, Paul was fully qualified. He was called by Jesus on the road to Damascus, in which he witnessed alone on that road an eyewitness instance of Jesus' resurrection. Paul was fully qualified to be an apostle. So Paul refers to himself here as a slave of Christ Jesus, as a called apostle, and next, as being set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's master, Jesus, had not only called him to apostleship, but also set him apart for a ministry of gospel preaching and gospel spreading and specifically to the Gentiles. The term gospel means good news. We talked about that some last week. The term good news or gospel was in general use, and it was used for the proclamation of any good news. Maybe it was about a birthday of a significant authority in the government, or maybe it was about good news of a battle that had been won on some distant land, or good news about some new policy that was going to alleviate suffering. But the term gospel quickly came to have a technical meaning among Christians. A technical meaning for a summary of the proclamation of good news that God has sent His only Son, Jesus the Messiah, into the world to live a sinless life and die on the cross as a substitute for all who will place their faith and trust in Him for salvation. The good news is that God forgives and saves sinners and that this salvation and forgiveness can be received freely by anyone who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel is still good news today, isn't it? It's good news that the world needs to hear. It's good news this morning that maybe you need to hear. That all your sins can be forgiven. That all your guilt can be wiped away because God has made provision for it through this giving of His Son, Jesus Christ, on your behalf. It's good news. This was the message that Paul was sent to preach and to share. This good news is God's good news. It is God's gospel. Notice that. God's gospel. This means that the good news, the gospel, is from God and it is about God. The gospel is from God in that it originates in Him. This isn't made up by man. This is the gospel of God, the good news of God that He has revealed to mankind. It originates in Him. The gospel was God's plan from the very beginning and from before the very beginning. 
You see, the gospel is not some plan B. That God created things and everything was good and it was all as it should be and then sin entered the world and, and God said, oh no, what am I going to do? No, the gospel has always been plan A. For God determined an eternity past to choose a people for Himself, a people for His own glory, a people for His own name, a people who would be the chosen of God, redeemed by the Son and born again by the Spirit. God's gospel is not only from Him, but it is also about Him. Romans is a book about the gospel. And because it's a book about the gospel, it's a book primarily about God. Because the gospel is central to this letter, God is central to this letter. The gospel reveals who God is. The gospel reveals God's character. It reveals His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, and His perfect judgment. But it also reveals... Praise God, His infinite love, His grace, His mercy, and His kindness to us in the giving of His Son, Jesus. All these are revealed to us in the gospel. You see, the gospel is first and foremost not about us. It's it's about God and His glory. His glory revealed equally in His justice and in His mercy. His glory revealed revealed supremely and displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ as He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. This is the message of the good news of the gospel. And it is the good news for which Jesus set apart the apostle Paul to preach and to share to the Gentiles. You see, Paul understood his place in the universe Paul understood that he was not the center of the universe, but that Jesus is. Paul was but a slave of Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And Paul embraced this role with zeal and delight. Jesus was his master, and Paul joyfully placed himself under Jesus' supreme authority. You see, after Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples and over 500 eyewitnesses for a period of 40 days. Jesus then, just before he ascended to heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things, said this to his disciples. He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This means that Jesus is the risen Lord, and as the risen Lord, who sits at the right hand of the Father, the position of honor, authority, and power, Jesus, even now, is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is at the center of all authority because He possesses all authority. And if anyone should acknowledge this and live in light of it, then surely it's the Christian. And Paul models this for us here by introducing himself as a slave of Christ Jesus, who's merely responding to the call of God for him to be an apostle and serving as a servant of the gospel of God. Jesus is the master, the center of all authority. Secondly, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the center of God's redemptive plan. Having mentioned the gospel of God in verse 1, Paul further explains what he means by that in verses 2 and 3. The gospel is that which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Paul here is demonstrating that his gospel, the gospel of God, is not something new. This isn't some innovation. This isn't Paul shooting from the hip making stuff up. Paul is saying, look, my gospel, the gospel of God, is grounded in the Old Testament. It's grounded in the Scriptures. It's grounded in the prophets. It's grounded in all the promises of God about the coming Messiah and what He would do and how He would bless all the nations. The gospel is the fulfillment of God's promise. God promised in the Old Testament 
to send a Messiah who would save people from their sins and restore all creation from the curse of sin. The first such promise comes to us in Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve's fall from sin, when God promised that a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, would crush Satan's head and set all things right again. That promise was further elaborated upon and repeated in Genesis 12.3 to Abraham when God promised to make the childless Abraham a great nation to give him a seed, descendants, more numerous than the stars in the sky. And that God would not only bless Abraham, but he would truly bless all families of the earth through Abraham, through the, one of those descendants. The promise was graphically pictured when Abraham was called upon by God to sacrifice his only son Isaac, the embodiment of all the promises of God. And when Isaac asked where the lamb for the sacrifice was, Abraham responded in faith, God himself will provide the lamb. And God did just that, providing a ram caught in a thicket that served as a substitute for Isaac and secured the promise of God for the seed of Abraham. The promise of the gospel was further elaborated upon in Isaiah 53, which foretold of a coming servant of the Lord who would serve as a substitute for sinners. Listen to Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely our griefs he, that servant, himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. This coming servant is going to serve as a substitute for, our, for us. He's going to stand in our place. He's going to be crushed for us so that by His suffering we would receive healing and wholeness. Promise of the gospel can be traced throughout the Old Testament. These are but a few examples. And Paul's making it clear here that his message, his gospel, is the same one promised in the Holy Scriptures and foretold by the prophets. Paul says that the promise of the gospel in the Old Testament was concerning God's Son. God's Son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. The way this is phrased, it presumes Jesus' pre-existence as the eternal Son of God. He was always the Son of God. He existed in all eternity past as the Son of God. But in the fullness of time, God saw fit that He would be born of a woman. The Son of God was born of a descendant of David. To be born a descendant of David was a clear messianic requirement stated in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel and Jeremiah. Matthew's Gospel shows us that Jesus was a descendant of David by adoption through Joseph. And Luke's Gospel shows us that Jesus was a descendant of David by blood through Mary. Jesus made it clear during His earthly ministry after His resurrection that He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament Scriptures that spoke of a coming Messiah. In John 5.39, Jesus told the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify about Me. Jesus says the whole Old Testament is pointing to Me. I am the fulfillment of all those promises of a coming Messiah. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus is the center of the scriptures, he's the center of the promises. He is the center of God's purposes. Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as the Messiah, Jesus is the center of God's plan for redemption, a plan made in eternity past and revealed by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, a plan fulfilled in the Son of God who was born a descendant of David in fulfillment of Messianic promises. The gospel is central to the book of Romans and Jesus is central to the gospel. Jesus is central to God's redemptive plan. 
Thirdly, Jesus is also the risen one. He is the center of all history. Look at verse 4. His Son, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power. The word declared is probably better translated as designated or as appointed the Son of God in power. You see, Paul is using the language of coronation here. He's saying that Jesus has ascended to a special throne provided for and prepared by His Father. After the resurrection and because of the resurrection, Jesus was designated or appointed or coronated as the Son of God in power. The Son of God ruling and reigning. It's important to note that Paul is not saying that Jesus became something after the resurrection that he wasn't before. He's not, Paul is not saying that Jesus is now the Son of God and he wasn't before. He's saying that now Jesus has assumed a position of power. His title is the Son of God in power. This is, doesn't involve a change in Jesus' essence as the Son of God. It involves a change in His position, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God as the Son of God in power. Because of the resurrection, the eternal Son of God becomes the Son of God in power. Jesus went from a position of weakness and frailty with regard to His humanness in the incarnation according to the flesh. He went from that to a position of power and might and rule and authority at His resurrection according to the Spirit of holiness. Because of this, Jesus is the center of all history. He's the most important figure in all human history. Not simply because He died on a cross. Lots of people died on crosses. The Romans were very efficient in their task of crucifixion. They killed many, many by crucifixion. But none of the others who were ever crucified ever rose from the dead. The Romans saw to it, and they sought to see to it in respect to Jesus. They sealed the tomb. They did everything they could, and yet the grave could not hold him. Jesus is the only person to have died who didn't deserve to die. The only person to have died for the sins of others, and the only person to have risen from the dead, victorious over the grave, and never to die again. And this marks out Jesus as the most important figure in all of history. Jesus stands at the center of all of history, of all that has ever been and all that ever will be. Jesus is at the center and is therefore the only object who is deserving of our worship, of our faith, and of our service. Fourthly, Jesus is the mediator, the center of divine blessing. We see this in verse 5 and verse 7. Look at verse 5. Look how it begins. Through whom? And to whom is the through whom referring? We've got to go back to the previous verse. The end of verse 4. Jesus Christ our Lord. It is through Him, through whom, it is through Jesus Christ our Lord that Paul has received grace and apostleship. We already looked at Paul's apostleship. But what is grace? Grace is a gift, a gift from God. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is undeserved blessing. Grace is something that can't be worked for. It can't be earned. It can't be won. It can't be achieved. It can only be given freely, and it can only be received freely. Otherwise, it ceases to be a gift. We're going to hear a lot more about grace in the weeks and months to come. Paul had received unmerited favor from God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse 7, Paul prays a blessing over the Christians at Rome and he sends them greetings. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us grace by giving us His Son Jesus and the result of this gift of grace is peace. And so we can sing with our hearts filled with God's grace and peace 
It is well with my soul. Why? Because of God's grace, which has granted us peace. Relational peace with God. He's taken away the enmity. He's taken away that which has divided us. He's taken away that which has brought us only wrath. And He's brought us peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ as a result of God's grace. Jesus is the mediator of this grace and peace. And therefore, He is the center of divine blessing. Jesus makes the blessings of God's grace and peace possible for us by paying the price for our sins and dying the death that we deserved. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus has spanned that great gulf that exists between holy God and sinful mankind. And He has spanned that gulf by His cross. You want the blessing of God in your life? There's only one way to have it. It's through faith in Jesus. You want God's grace to be present in your life? There's only one place to find it, at the cross of Jesus Christ. You want God's peace to be operative in your life, calming your soul? There's only one way to know it, and that's through the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mediator, and therefore He is the center of divine blessing. Finally, Jesus is the Savior, the center of divine calling. We see this in verses 6 and 7. God's grace and apostleship in Paul's life, mediated by Jesus Christ, was for the purpose of bringing about the salvation of the Gentiles. What Paul calls the obedience of faith. Faith and obedience always go together. They're like sunshine and light. You can't have one without the other. True saving faith always produces obedience. If there is a true root of faith, there will be some fruit of faith, the fruit of obedience. If there isn't present some fruit of obedience, then there isn't likely a root of faith. The obedience of faith, then, that Paul talks about here is referring to true conversion, genuine salvation. And that's one of the great purposes for Paul's conversion and calling. It was for the genuine salvation of the Gentiles, that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Jesus said, I have other sheep, not only of this fold, but of another fold, and I must go get them also, talking about the Gentiles. And so Jesus sent Paul to share the good news among the Gentiles. And the great purpose behind this mission to the Gentiles was, as Paul says here, for his name's sake. The great purpose of salvation, both of Jew and Gentile, is for the exaltation of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about his glory. It's about his exaltation. God's saving grace to the Gentiles includes those who are in Rome, as verse 6 makes clear. The Gentiles in Rome are included as being part of the called of Jesus Christ. The term called is the same term that Paul used in verse 1 of his own salvation and apostleship. The term called refers to God's effectual calling. The effectual call of God always results in salvation. Only those who receive the special call of God respond in faith. That's because salvation is from the Lord. It doesn't originate with us. It originates in the Lord. Jesus spoke of this special call unto salvation in John 10. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This saving call of God is individual, it's irresistible, and it's a calling that results in obedience and service to the Lord. Every true Christian has been issued the same saving call from God. Not only are they called of Jesus Christ, but they are also beloved of God. They have been loved with an everlasting love. Loved with the perfect love of God, a saving love. And a proof of this love is seen in their calling unto salvation. A third designation of these believers in Rome is that they are called as saints. 
The term saint means holy one, set apart for divine service. At the moment of our salvation, we become saints. That's part of our effectual calling of God unto salvation. We're declared righteous in God's sight. The very righteousness of Jesus Christ is conferred upon us, apportioned to us. We're declared righteous in God's sight through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And our spiritual status goes from being condemned as sinners in God's sight to being saints. A condition, a status that can never be improved upon and that can never be taken away. We are called, accepted, beloved, and nothing can ever change that. Now, do we saints in Christ still struggle with temptation and sin? Of course we do. We are saints, though, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteous calling of God that has made us saints through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who saved us from our sins and saved us unto sainthood. As Luther says, we are simultaneously sinners and saints. So it all goes back to Jesus. In all that we've seen, in these what seem to be perfunctory words of the Apostle Paul, as he just gets going, he's just building up ahead of steam. He, 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 the, the furnace is still cool. We haven't gotten anywhere yet and he's already pointed us again and again and again to Jesus Christ because Jesus is at the center. He's at the center of the gospel. He's at the center of our need. He's at the center of God's supply. The only question is, is Jesus at the center of your life? Have you trusted in him as your savior? If you haven't, there's no reason to delay. And there's every reason to move on it. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God offers you forgiveness freely through faith in His Son Jesus. He offers you eternal life today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Jesus is at the center of all things. He is worthy. Worthy of all our worship and all our service, for He is truly at the center of all that God is doing. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love You. Help us to love You more. We worship You. Help us to worship You more purely, with greater exuberance. For You are the center of all that God is doing, the center of all human history, the center of all authority, the center of divine blessing and calling. You're the center of it all. Lord, help us to live accordingly with you at the center of our lives, the center of our desires, the center of our efforts, the center of our goals. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.